Welcome to PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on January 10, 2018, focusing on U.S. mandatory deemed repatriation considerations. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PDBC's Tax Services Leader, Tim Anson, a PDBC tax partner focusing on international tax issues, Elizabeth Nelson, a PDBC tax director also focusing on international tax issues, and Wade Sutton, a PDBC tax principal focusing on mergers and acquisitions issues. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists walking through examples illustrating the calculation of the toll charge. So, Elizabeth, I'm going to turn to you, see if you can walk us through a couple of examples here. Sure. So, uh, just to review the architecture, the provision that Wade talked a little bit about, it's a subpart F inclusion that you're picking up at the U.S. shareholder level, and then against that, you're applying a participation exemption or a deduction to get to your effective rate on the inclusion that's considered to be related to cash position and subject to a 15.5% rate, and then the residual E&P amount that's um, taxed at the 8% rate. And also, uh, the inclusion brings up 960 credits, and at the U.S. shareholder level, those are then haircut or reduced um, in line with the reduction for the inclusion to get kind of to the effective rate, um, along with the 78 gross-up. So that's kind of the overall architecture of the provision. And this first slide, we're going to be dealing with the inclusion amount. So the inclusion amount that you pick up is based off your accumulated post-86 deferred foreign income, as Wade indicated, and that excludes um, effectively connected earnings and um, previously taxed earnings. That number is based off your post-86 earnings and profits. There is no cross-reference in this 965 provision to Section 902 post-86 earnings and profits, which most of us are most familiar with in looking at um, deemed paid credits. So they have conceived their own post-86 E&P definition, and it consists of earnings and profits, uh, post-86 earnings and profits of the specified foreign corporation as of the two measurement dates, November 2nd and December 31st of 2017. And this amount is not reduced by dividends that are distributed during the toll charge year. Um, other than for dividends paid to other specified foreign corporations. So, for example, if you had a first-tier specified foreign corporation and it paid a distribution, a dividend, in the toll charge year to its U.S. shareholder, that would not reduce the post-86 E&P for purposes of 965. However, if you had a lower-tier entity that paid up a dividend to um, the upper-tier specified foreign corporation, it would reduce the earnings and profits for purposes of, of figuring out your toll charge inclusion amount for each of the entities. So basically, they let you pay dividends between specified foreign corporations as untaxed E&P, and then they'll apply the toll charge to wherever that E&P lands. Correct. And yeah. we've also had a notice come out that gave us some ordering rules for purposes of applying that rule that is in the post-86 E&P definition and how that interacts with um, the PTI rules because you are paying up a uh, dividend or distribution during the year in which you have a subpart F inclusion and it wasn't totally clear how you'd apply the 959 rules in conjunction with this rule. So once you know what your greater of November 2nd or December 31st amount is, that's the amount that you're picking up as subpart F at the U.S. shareholder level. And if we look at the example here on the page, we have two foreign corporations, Forco 1 and Forco 2, and they're both first tier under a U.S. shareholder. 
They all have 1231 year ends, so we've simplified the example. And here, the 4CO1 has a greater 11.2 amount of 300, and 4CO2 has a greater 1231 amount of 600. So our inclusion amount that we pick up, that's picked up by USP in 2017, because everybody has the 1231 year end, um, is 900. So if we move on to the next well, slide. And I guess the translation of that, um, since the toll charge is another category of subpart F income, one would think you use the normal subpart F translation rates, which are at, is the average rate for the year, which seems kind of odd, right? Because you're taxing earnings over many, many years. And so, you know, maybe the year-end rate would make more sense, maybe not. But I think it's, it's kind of a, a mismatch right now. We'll see what happens with future guidance if they, if they change that. Mm -hmm. So here on this page, we're looking at the allowable deduction that applies against the subpart F inclusion at the U.S. shareholder level. Um, for purposes of calculating the deduction, you need to determine which amount of the inclusion is associated with the cash position. And so we have assumed for purposes of example that the aggregate foreign cash position of the U.S. shareholder is 250. And so of the 900 inclusion, 250 is subject to tax at the 15.5% cash rate, and then the remainder of the inclusion is subject to tax um, at the 8% rate, so that's the 650. There's a complicated formula, which I'm not going to go through, but essentially it's to get you down to the effective rate, um, knowing that in 2017 there's a 35% um, statutory rate that applies to the amount. And in 2018, if you have inclusions in 2018 because you have different uh, specified foreign corporations with different U.S. year-ends, that this deduction amount will change to get you to the right effective rate, given a statutory rate in 2018 of 21%. So here we have a uh, deduction amount that gets us down to a taxable income amount of uh, 260 total between the two entities, um, cash, non-cash, and a U.S. tax liability of $91. And you can see we've got an effective rate on the two pieces equal to the 15.5 and 8%, which gives us a blended rate of 10.1%. One thing to mention here, we don't illustrate this in the example, but there is an issue with uh, double counting of aggregate foreign cash position. If you have two inclusion years, so you have both, for example, 1231 specified foreign corporations and 1130 specified foreign corporations, so you'd have two inclusion years, the statutory language basically offsets the inclusion amount by the same aggregate foreign cash position in each year. So you can end up with a double counting of the amount of E&P that's subject to tax at the cash rate. So Treasury has addressed this in the notice that was issued. And what they've essentially done is front-loaded the cash, the E&P associated with the cash position to the earlier inclusion year. And so, for example, if we said that our 250 of cash E&P was the inclusion amount in 2017, that would all be subject to tax at the 15.5% rate. And if our 650 remaining was subject to tax in 2018, that would all be subject to tax at the 8% rate. So they'd front load the higher rate into the earlier inclusion year. I mean, needless to say, it's really, really important to um, distinguish between cash and non-cash positions because obviously doubles the rate almost. So and that's not the simplest thing to do um, based on the definitions, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But Okay, if we go to the next slide. So the next part of this calculation is associated with the um, F foreign tax credit disallowance. 
So we brought up 960 credits uh, to the U.S. shareholder with our subpart F inclusion amount, which is a full amount unreduced by the deduction. And that brings up 960 credits. And in our example, we, with our inclusion amount, we bring up all of the taxes in the pool. So we're bringing up um, 60 of credits for 4CO1 and 200 in 4CO2. Um, that may not be the case if you have, for example, fiscal year specified foreign corporations that have post-measurement E&P, and so your 902, 960 denominator is greater than your inclusion amount in the numerator. So you may bring up less credits and leave some credits in the pool at the specified foreign corporation level. But here we've assumed they all come up. Um, we apply a percentage, uh, basically haircutting the taxes based on the two effective rates that apply to the two parts of the inclusion to get to uh, taxes allowed of $75 between the two foreign corporations. And we do the same with the Section 78 gross up. And then we arrive at the calculation of the tax due on the toll charge amount. Um, here, as we calculated on a prior slide, we have a $260 inclusion. Um, that, that's net of the deduction, a $91 tax on that. And we have a Section 78 gross up that gets taxed at the 35% rate that's already been haircut similar to the inclusion amount. That brings us to a U.S. tax liability of 117. And then we're able to apply foreign tax credits against that amount. We've assumed that there's no um, foreign tax credit limitation issue um, and applied all of the allowable credits that came up as deemed paid credits, 75, to get us to a tax due of $42. Um, you could use other taxes at the U.S. shareholder level that didn't come up as deemed paid credits against the toll charge amount as long as you have foreign tax credit limitation. Um, we haven't factored that into the example, but they're available. You also need to consider if you have OFL recapture account, that has not been turned off. That was in the House bill, and that was not included in the conference bill, and so you now need to consider OFL recapture, which if you have the large toll charge amount coming up, that would likely cause a fair bit of OFL recapture to occur. There's also an election to forego offsetting the uh, inclusion amount by current year NOL or NOL carry forward. And I, I think on NOLs, <clears throat> they let you <coughs> forego an NOL offset the question is, what about a current year operating loss? Are they going to let you do that? Make the same election right now? The, the rules don't provide for it. it. You know, it's not clear, but I think um, that is on the radar for something they're possibly considering allowing taxpayers to forego the use of a current year operating loss against the toll charge. Right, and it's really because the statutory language. There's a technical glitch in the language that basically means both provisions are addressing an NOL carry forward. So the hope is that Treasury will yeah, fix we'll that. We'll see in future guidance. Yeah. So why don't we dive into a little bit more on the example front. Wait, I'm going to go to you to maybe dive into a couple more example situations. Sure. Yeah, I think getting into some of the details will help explain some of the rules here. Because um, there's a complex web of, you know, the notice and the statutory no double counting rules. and. Um, I think the first thing to point out here in this example is we have a U.S. parent that owns a U.S. sub, and we're going to assume they're a consolidated group. And the importance of that is that you then get to treat them as a single shareholder for purposes of determining your toll charge and your um, cash position. Um, and I think it's important to point out that's not in the statutory language. That was in the notice that was provided by Treasury. Right. Now, that said, you know, 
1502 gives very broad regulatory authority, and this seems clearly um, within that. So then when, when you determine um, the aggregate foreign cash position, I think the first important thing to point out here is that 4CO4 is not a DFIC, a Deferred Foreign Income Corporation. It has zero EMP. Uh, but it has cash, and you do need to take that ca cash into account for this purpose. And again, the reason is cash position, the definition, is determined um, looking at specified foreign corps. Um, so that $50 of cash goes in um, to the fraction. With respect to 4CO1, it has two instruments that would qualify as cash potentially. There's a loan to a bank for $120, and then there's an intercompany loan or AR, of $50. Um, before the notice, that total cash position would have been 170 but thankfully there's double counting relief provided here where the instrument is disregarded if it's between two specified foreign corporations that have co common ownership. And, you know, that's important. There's another double counting rule in the bill, and the way it reads is you can disregard an instrument if you can show that the amount was taken into account by someone else. Um, it, it wasn't clear before the notice that U.S. sub would have taken into account any cash with respect to 404 because before this rule saying that you had one consolidated group treated as a single U.S. shareholder, U.S. SEB would not have had a toll charge, and therefore no one would have taken into account that cash. And so we didn't think the, the statutory double counting rule would have fixed this issue. Okay. Um, and then finally, you'll notice that 4CO3 is only 60% owned by 4CO2, and it has $100 of cash. And so you determine cash position using principles similar to 951A2, and so you basically prorate the $100 by 60% to get to a cash measurement of 60 for that entity. And so when all of this rolls up and you add it together, you end up with 230 of total cash. Um, you know, Tim, I guess one of the other things that, that we think is helpful, um, you know, turning to the bank, let's, let's talk about physical cash pooling and, and whether or not that's eligible for relief. Well, the physical is yes, because that's going to be intercompany lending. And so the notice makes it clear that you disregard all intercompany transactions so they don't create, you know, cash positions, which was a welcome change, you know, from before mm -hmm. the notice. The, the other thing I just want to emphasize, Wade, what you said at the beginning, when you look at 4CO4, before the notice, it's got, you know, it's got a cash position, no E&P. And, you know, I think we would have thought, since it's a U.S. shareholder by U.S. shareholder determination of cash position, you could have ignored that $50 of cash at 4CO4 um, because there's no EMP in that chain. Mm -hmm. And the notice says, no, even though there's no EMP or a deficit, that $50 of cash at 4CO4 can cause the earnings in the uh, other chain to be taxed at a higher rate. So that, that was not a good development, but a development nonetheless. Yeah. The, the other thing just to point out here, and this is a glitch that I'm hoping gets fixed, is... Um, the way you measure cash, again, is the last taxable year that begins before 18 or the prior two years um, that begin, that end before 11-2. And that definition keys off of SFC, Specified Foreign Corp, not Deferred Foreign Income Corp. And so the question is, you know, what if I have an entity that liquidated into another CFC in 1995? That might be its last taxable year that began before 2018, 
do I have to take that cash position into account? Um, that answer personally seems absurd, but it's it's um, one that we're looking at and hoping that Treasury um, confirms should not be an issue. Yeah, you, you would hope that if the entity's gone before 11-2 of 17, so its earnings don't enter into the toll charge at all, that the cash position should also be you know excluded from from the calculations like because as you said if you if you don't draw a line somewhere then you're going back as much as 30 years and we know how hard it is to calculate a cash position mm -hmm. it's not a simple matter of looking at a balance sheet what's your cash what's your accounts receivable accounts payable you got to dive into those amounts to see what's really in them as we were discussing i mean a, a loan from a bank if you don't use it to uh pay for a deductible expense under 461, then that's probably not a short-term payable that can offset a receivable. And so determining cash positions for three different dates, <clears throat> as difficult as it is diving into the material, and then to think that you have to go back 25 or 30 years if an entity liquidated, it's kind of a challenge, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> right. So let's go on to the next example that deals with deficits. Um, there are two definite deficit mechanics in the statute. Um, there's one for where you have positive E&P. Oh, sorry, let me back up. You, you can reduce your toll charge amount by your share of a foreign corporation's deficits. Um, now, there are two rules that, that um, have different mechanics in the statute for how to apply this. Um, uh, under just general 965B1, you, you look at the U.S. shareholder and you allocate its share of an entity's deficits to its positive ENP entities basically on a pro rata basis. And, and that's what we're showing here in this picture. Mm -hmm. um, you've got 4CO1, it has 300 of ENP. 4CO2 has twice as much ENP, uh, 600, and then you have a $300 deficit down below. And so when you determine the toll charge amount, one third of the deficit gets allocated to 4CO1 two-thirds of the deficit gets allocated to 4CO2. And so you would have a toll charge of only 200 on 4CO1 and 400 on 4CO2. And allocation of the deficits matters because those two entities have different tax pools. And so who gets the deficit ultimately determines whose credits show up on the return mm -hmm. as part of the toll charge. Um, and, and as we all know, those credits will get haircut. And so you can get very different answers depending on how deficits get allocated. Um, the, the other interesting piece of, of this 965 deficit mechanic is to the extent an entity's ENP was offset by someone else's deficit, that ENP is treated as if it were previously taxed income under Section 951. For purposes of 959, it's, it's just for that one purpose in the statute. On the other hand, the deficit entity's ENP is increased by the amount um, that offset other folks' ENP uh, for all purposes of this title. And, and so, you know, one of the questions we're getting from clients frequently is, well, wh what does that mean? You know, for example, imagine that... Um, 4CO2 had a factory that it wanted to bring back to the U.S. after the toll charges decided to take advantage of the new FDII regime, and it liquidates 4CO2 into the U.S. or domesticates the entity. Um, one of the questions we're wrestling with is, is that PTI from the deficit offset 367B PTI, or is it just limited to 959? 
A lot of, one of hundreds of open questions under this provision. We've got a very long running list. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, this picture has a zillion issues in it. Like you say, Wade, like, do you get basis for your deemed PTI because of the deficit offset? You get, you know, 961A basis. And like I said, how do you treat that PTI for foreign tax credit purposes? Do you reduce your denominator of your 902 formula? Is it like, like you do regular PTI or not? And, you know, then when you get to remitting this PTI back to the U.S., You've got different buckets. You've got the toll charge PTI. You've got the deemed PTI. You could have regular subpart F PTI. And withholding taxes on some get haircut, but not on others. And how do you prioritize repatriations out of which bucket of PTI? There's, there's a bunch of issues. An ordering will. Yeah. There, th this is what a lot of the future guidance, I think, is, is going to address uh, down the road. But Yeah. I guess one other thing quickly on this slide. Um, there's another rule for affiliated groups, okay, under the statute, 965B5, and it has a different mechanic. You, you do offset the toll charge um, or reduce it at least to the extent of deficits, but the allocation rule is a little different, and, and the, you know, that's important for foreign tax credit purposes. And there's no deemed PTI, no increase of EMP. An interesting question is the notice, 2018-7, that came out at the end of 17. Um, says that, you know, a consolidated group is treated as a single shareholder for purposes of 965. We think including for purposes of the deficit rule. And so that leaves a very tiny amount of facts patterns that actually 965B5, the second deficit rule, would actually apply to. Um, right, and it would, it would really change, it, it could materially change the FTC calculation, right? Because the statute has a two-step process. It's a proration of deficits under the same U.S. shareholder, then a cross-chain deficit, mm -hmm. netting to the extent you have a net deficit chain. If you take a big aggregate deficit as, as if all the consolidated group members are one U.S. shareholder, you're prorating that big deficit to all your inclusion companies, and so you can end up with companies where you didn't have an inclusion before having an inclusion and having a FTC calculation. Yeah, and, and to your point earlier, the reason this happened is literally the House version was cut and paste into the Senate version, <laughs> and that went to conference. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.